Bonjour et bienvenue à tous et à toutes. Hello there and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 12, The Seine and the Champs-Élysées. Going to look at those two venerable Parisian institutions. I'm sure that really when you go to Paris, two things you want to do on any visit are sail along the Seine or perhaps walk along its banks and have a little linger on the Champs-Élysées. So for this episode, I'm going to take those two places give you a little background history on both of them. We're going to enjoy the reminiscences of one or two writers who went to see them and even indulge in a few lines of poetry. So, along the Seine, if you conjure up a picture of Paris in your mind, it's very likely from the Pont Neuf looking along the Seine to the Ile de la Cité and Notre Dame, a place where you can stand and have all sorts of lyrical thoughts. And it's certainly true that lots of writers have done exactly that and left their thoughts for us to enjoy on those terrible days when we're not actually looking at the Seine. One of these was one Herbert Adams Gibbons, who was very precise about what his favourite walk in Paris, possibly his favourite walk ever, actually was. You have to take it in the hour before sunset. You start at the Pont Alexandre III, so the Alexandre III bridge, and you walk up the left bank towards Notre Dame. Then you cross the river at the Pont de l'Archeveche, and walk back to the Alexandra Bridge. If you do that, he says, at exactly the right time, you will have, quote, the full glory of the setting sun before you, and you will be able to linger on Place de la Concorde on your way back and watch the day disappearing against a backdrop of the Arc de Triomphe. What could be nicer? He explained in the following words that it really was his favourite walk ever. I am not yet old enough to have taken this walk a thousand times, but when I have... I am sure that it will present the same fascination, the same stirring of the soul, the same exaltation that it does today. So, absolutely a walk of which you could never tire. Somebody else who loved the Seine is the chef and author David Leibovitz, long-time resident of Paris, author of a book called The Sweet Life, which I'll be dealing with in a future episode, who wrote at one point about the evening when he was fairly new living in the city, when he first fell in love with the Seine, and in his case, it was the Seine at night. He describes what happens as he was walking home after an evening out with friends. Quote, I was walking alone across one of the graceful bridges that cross the Seine, and couldn't help noticing that its beauty is magnified in the darkness. Lights glow everywhere and frame the centuries-old buildings in spectacular ways. I remember that evening, breathing in the damp air rising off the Seine, watching the bateau parisien gliding on the river, loaded with awestruck tourists, and illuminating the monuments in their wake, the dramatic light hitting a building for just a few moments before moving on to the next. Another very Parisian author was the novelist Julien Green, who used to say that he knew the Seine in all its many different moods. He once wrote about it when it was flooding, using a whole array of different adjectives, such as grey, green, weighty, majestic, haughty, forbidding, magnificent, full of rage. But in the end, he too had to agree that when he loved it best was at night. This is what he wrote about that. Paris in a thin mist at nightfall, lights reflected in the water, Notre Dame all white beyond the bridges, no more bewitching landscape could be conceived. And one final literary extract, this time by the writer Sarah Turnbull, who described in her book, almost French, how she felt when looking at the Seine in the early evening. 
It's romantic, she said. It's artistic. It reminds me of the artist, Monet. This is how she put it. The colours and light are Monet-esque, smudged golden pink skies and soft violet shadows. Now I see why artists and writers have compared Paris light to champagne. The evening air does have an effervescent quality. On the quay below, couples fall into each other's arms. I don't think I've ever seen such a meltingly romantic setting. Surely anybody reading that wants to get straight online and book some tickets to get there as fast as possible. And when you do arrive, of course, a boat trip is a classic way to spend an hour or two. There are lots of options, of course, but I thought I might just talk through very quickly one of the absolute classics, which is the one that starts from the Pont Neuf. So just downriver from Notre Dame, on the Pont Neuf, you just need to look for the big statue of Henry IV, which you can't possibly miss, and behind him, so on the side further away from Notre Dame, you'll see some steps, walk down there to a little park with a ticket booth in it where you can buy your boat trip. The classic one takes about an hour. It'll turn left from that part of the river down towards the Eiffel Tower. So on your left-hand side, as you sail down, you'll have the Musée d'Orsay, the big Impressionist museum, the place that used to be a station, its glass and iron construct dating from the Belle Époque. You'll go past the Parliament, the Assemblée Nationale, classic-looking building with pillars. You'll go past the Invalide, very noticeable with its lovely big shiny golden dome. You'll pass the Russian church, known as the Cathédrale Orthodoxe de la Sainte Trinité, so the Holy Trinity Orthodox Cathedral. And all that time you'll have been sailing past Montparnasse and Saint-Germain. You'll be approaching the Eiffel Tower, round about there. They'll turn round nice and slowly so you have plenty of time to look at it and then go back up the way you've come. You'll actually be sailing now up the right bank but it'll be on your left, confusingly. And things that you will pass. A couple more very impressive Belle Epoque buildings, the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais, which were built for the exhibition in 1900. The Exposition Universelle, when it seemed as if the whole world came to Paris. Then you'll go past the Place de la Concorde, past the Tuileries and past the Louvre. And not far past that, the river splits in two. And you'll probably branch to the right, Sailing up then with Notre Dame on your left, you're sailing past the Ile de la Cité, and you continue, you'll notice another bridge connecting the two islands, so then at that point you're also sailing past the Ile Saint-Louis, and then at the top of that, you'll round the corner and start coming back. And as you sail down there, back to the starting point, you'll have the Hôtel de Ville on your right, and obviously the other side of Notre Dame on your left. A short cruise from there, and you are back at the Pont Neuf. Lovely. What could be nicer? Equally nice, though, you could walk. People have been doing that for centuries. We have Napoleon to thank for the fact that there are very serviceable roads all up both sides of the Seine. He had those built, called them the Quai. Collectively, I think they're known as the Quai de Seine, but they have different names as you go along. So by the Tuileries, for example, you've got Quai des Tuileries on the Tuileries side and the Quai Anatole France on the other side. Even better, in 2013, I think it was, somebody had the genius idea of constructing a pedestrianised walkway along the Seine. They started with what turned out to be one half of the whole thing, along the left bank from the Pont d'Alma to the Musée d'Orsay, a walk of about 2.3 kilometres, known as the Berge de Seine. Very popular, it proved. So in 2017, 
they decided to build some more on the other side. So it starts near the Tuileries and finishes up near the Bastille. And you can do the whole thing by starting at the Pont d'Alma, crossing over at the appropriate moment and finishing up at the Bastille. And if you decided to do that, that would be a full five and a half kilometres, a walk called Rive de Seine. And what's particularly nice about it is some creative people have thought of all kinds of interesting things to do on the way. So you'll pass playgrounds and picnic areas, somewhere where you can indulge in a spot of pétanque. There are cafes where you can borrow a board game. There's a fitness course. There are places where you can hire a deck chair or pause and eat in a restaurant or a bar. So it really does make for a lovely outing. And one last thing about walking up the Seine, it's a good opportunity to indulge in that very Parisian activity of browsing the bouquiniste. Bouquin is a slang word for book, and a bouquiniste is somebody who sells books. And all along the riverbank in central Paris, you will see the bouquiniste. Little stalls which sell mainly second-hand books, but also lots of posters and postcards and a few selling souvenirs. But the atmosphere is classy rather than trashy, for sure. It's a place to browse, to find a book you didn't know existed or you didn't know you needed, but actually it's a must-have. You probably got lots of books, but there's always room for one more, especially one that works as a classy souvenir of your visit to Paris. The bouquinists are definitely partly for the tourists, but they're also very much used by Parisians. Last time I went to one, I had quite a chat with the man running the store about who did and who didn't read these days. The elderly, he said, good customers. Middle-aged people, not so much. But the sign of hope for the future, from his point of view, was the fact that he did have lots of young customers, people in their early 20s, gobbling up the books that he had for sale. They date back a long way, actually. The first ones were there in the 16th century. They were one of the many attractions of the newly built Pont Neuf. So it's something you could do as you cross the bridge, stop and buy a book. And the whole thing was much more formalised in the 1850s when they were granted official licences. And now there are two or three hundred all along about a three kilometre stretch of the river. There are rules. Anybody who wants to open one and gets a permit can have up to four stalls, but only one of them can sell souvenirs. So the Paris authorities are quite keen to keep the flavour, keep it being mainly about books and old postcards and classy posters. If you want to buy some plastic trash, there are other places in Paris where you can do that. Another major feature of the river is the bridges, all of which have their own style and history. I think I read that there are 37 in total, so without wishing to get lost in the detail, I thought I'll just pick five to say a little something about. So I'm going to start down near the Grand Palais and work my way up towards Notre Dame and pick out five bridges that you would pass on that route and talk about them. And the first one is the Pont Alexandre III, the Alexander III Bridge, which was built for the 1900 Great Exhibition, the Exposition Universelle, when it seemed as if the whole world came to Paris to see what new and exciting things there were there. Also built for that exhibition was the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais, and this bridge, the Pont Alexandre III, was built as a lead to it. And it's also strategically placed to be a good crossing point for people who want to go to and from the Champs-Élysées on the right bank and the Invalides on the left bank. Both things I think the authorities were hoping that their visitors would want to do. It's very much a bridge of its time, so being for the new exhibition, 
It used the very latest technology, which in that case was moulded steel, and so it was regarded as quite something that they managed to build a bridge that crossed the Seine in one single arch. Not just technology, though, it's also about the Art Deco decoration, hence the rows of lamps which decorate it, and the much larger lamps at each end. The bridge was built as a symbol of Franco-Russian friendship, which accounts for its name. Alexander III was the Tsar of Russia at the end of the 19th century, and the first foundation stone of this bridge was laid by his son, Tsar Nicholas II, the bridge being, of course, named after his father. Moving up the river a little bit, there's the Pont de la Concorde, so the Concorde Bridge, built in the 1790s, i.e. just after the Revolution, and that's meaningful because it was actually built using, partly at least, stone from the newly destroyed Bastille prison. 1790s were largely about trying to get over the trauma of the French Revolution. The Place de la Révolution, Revolution Square, was hastily renamed to sound a bit more peaceful, therefore Place de la Concorde, and the name of this bridge also then went along with that. Up the river a little further, the Pont Royal, the Royal Bridge, which is sort of midway along the Tuileries, and which got its name because it was ordered by that most royal of persons, Louis XIV. There had been a wooden bridge there before, but it had burnt down, he wanted a big new one built, and so it was done. Hence the beautiful, graceful bridge with the five arches that you see there today. Up a little further, one of the very well-known bridges, the Pont des Arts, the Arts Bridge, the first footbridge ever built in Paris, dating from 1803, and people were so excited by it that no fewer than 60,000 of them came to see it opened. It's popular with various groups of people, the Pont des Arts, one of which is artists, because if you stand on the Pont des Arts and look upriver, you will have spectacular views of the Ile de la Cité and the Pont Neuf and Notre Dame. It's also popular with romantics. There's been a long tradition that you and your partner should scratch your initials on a padlock, attach the padlock to the Pont des Arts, lock it and throw the key away into the river. The padlock will therefore be there forever and that's a fitting symbol for your everlasting love. Unfortunately, so many people thought this was a good idea that it began to damage the bridge, the sheer weight of the things, and the mayor had to take the decision that they should all be removed and, for future times, banned. I don't think this has gone spectacularly well because I think you'll find there are some finding their way back. I have a feeling the authorities probably take them off every now and then. But it just seems to be a gesture that people can't resist. Many people would say that the Pont des Arts is actually their favourite bridge, all the ones in Paris, and one of these was the writer, B.S. Pritchett, writing in 1963, who said that it really was his favourite bridge to sit on or to walk along. And he described the sort of people that you would typically see crossing it, and gave us a nice picture of the general Parisian population from the 1960s. So this is what he wrote about it. It's, quote, really a promenade pitched between sky and water for students, nursemaids, children, old gentlemen, and for painters having another go at the classical view of the Pont Neuf and the Ile de la Cité, picking out the light on the Tour Saint-Jacques, struggling to get that flaking grey shade of the buildings. And then last but not least, the extremely well-known oldest bridge in Paris, the Pont Neuf, the new bridge. I guess it was new when it was built, which was in 1578, well that's when it was started, completed we think in 1607. 
There were bridges before it, of course, but none of those exist these days, and this is the one that goes back to the earliest time. I've seen it described as one of the wonders of Paris, and it is a beautiful bridge. Twelve graceful arches, built by Henri IV, Sir Henry IV, hence the statue of him halfway across. I think I did mention the Pont Neuf in an earlier episode, when we were talking about the Ile de la Cité, so I'm not going to say too much about it now. But there is a quote that I didn't use last time, which is rather nice, giving you an idea of the great medley of people who could be seen on this bridge. Parisians in its early days apparently used to claim that, quote, you cannot cross the Pont Neuf without seeing a monk, a harlot or a white horse. It was so much more than a bridge. It was a place where all sorts of people used to gather to try and buy or sell things. I think I read a nice description about that in the previous episode. And here, on the same topic, is the historian Robert Cole, with just a short passage summarising some of the things that went on on this bridge, other than people just crossing from one side of the river to the other. So he wrote, quote, Peddlers, musicians, a hydraulic pump, La Samaritaine, towering three storeys above the second arch on the north side, and medicine shows, were among the main attractions. Shopkeepers' stalls were removed only in 1854. Between 1975 and 85, the Bulgarian sculptor Christo Yavachev entertained Parisians by wrapping Pont in cloth as a monumental work of environmental art. So then, just to finish the section on the Seine, a few lines from two poets who are among the very, very, very many poets who have put pen to paper on the subject of the Seine. The first poet is Guillaume Apollinaire, who wrote a poem called Pont Mirabeau, about the Mirabeau Bridge a wistful poem. It's romantic. It stresses the passing of time, the fact that some things are lost and gone forever. But amongst all that, underneath this bridge, the Seine will always be flowing. So I'll read it in French because it sounds so much nicer. And try and pause and tell you what it's saying. It's very short. Passe les jours, passe les semaines. The days pass, the weeks pass. Ni temps passé, ni les amours reviennent. Neither past time nor loves will come back. Sous le pont Mirabeau, coule la Seine. But under the Mirabeau Bridge, the Seine flows. And then just a couple of lines from Baudelaire, who wrote about the beauty of early morning on the Seine, in the following way. L'aurore grelottante, the glittering dawn, en robe rose et verte, in a robe of pink and green, s'avançait lentement sur la Seine déserte, Advance slowly on the deserted River Seine. Again, particularly lovely in the French, I think. OK, moving on. The Champs-Élysées, that very fashionable main road right through the centre of Paris that has come to symbolise the glamour and the glitz of the city, but also to be a place where people gather at important moments. So, the Champs-Élysées stretches from the Arc de Triomphe up to the Tuileries, although it's part of a much bigger axis than that, known in fact in French as the Grand Axe, which would go from the Louvre, past the Arc de Triomphe, and then on in one long straight line, right up to the newly built Arche de la Défense, nine kilometres away. It's one of Paris's grandest fitsters. Gives the city a unity, I think. If you stand on the top of the Arc de Triomphe or on the Arche de la Défense and look at the other one, you're very aware that these two arches mirror each other and that there's a grand stretch of road between the two. The Champs-Élysées then 
had its origins in the 17th century. As early as 1616, it was a carriage route along which Queen Marie de Medici liked to ride. And then a bit later, 1667, under, of course, Louis XIV, it was embellished and made more of a thing. He commissioned his gardener, André Lenotre, to plant an avenue of trees along this route. And at that point, it was called the Grand Cours, but later the name was changed to Les Champs-Élysées, the Elysian Fields, the place of happiness, if you will. Further developed in the 19th century, that's when the patios and the fountains and the gaslights and the cafes all started to appear, and that was the era when it truly began to become a very fashionable place to be seen. Napoleon chose one end of it for the building of his monument, the Arc de Triomphe, and in 1840 his funeral procession began at the Arc de Triomphe, very fittingly, and processed then all the way down the Champs-Élysées. And that sort of set the tone for the idea that ever since, if there are memorable state processions or victory parades or important events, the Champs-Élysées is the place to stage them. In August 1944, for example, it was the place where Parisians celebrated the liberation of their city. Newly returned General de Gaulle led a march from the Arc de Triomphe right down the Champs-Élysées. It was also one of the key places where the student riots of 1968 took place. A lot of them were in the Quartier Latin and Montparnasse, where the universities are, but they also came to the Champs-Élysées, aware, I suppose, that they'd have a lot more clout from television pictures beamed around the world, taken on this beautiful avenue. A couple of years after that, in 1970, President de Gaulle died, and before his funeral, there was a silent march all the way along the Champs-Élysées in his memory. Happier times in 1998, you may know that that's when France won the World Cup, and of course, where to gather and celebrate, and again have pictures beamed around the world, but in the Champs-Élysées. More routine events take place there as well, so every Bastille Day, of course, the military parade, the marching bands, the French Air Force flying overhead, all of that takes place on the Champs-Élysées. And at the end of July, it's the place for the last stretch of the Tour de France. The rest of the time, it's shopping street, really, and a street of hotels and cafes. Pretty glamorous. Some of the top fashion brands are there. Also much frequented by tourists. A coffee there will cost you more than in many other corners of the city. But hey, what a backdrop. And it has to be said that for many, it is Paris. More interesting, perhaps, from a historical point of view, are some of the things just at the end of the Champs-Élysées. The Tuileries and the Louvre. So I wanted to talk a little bit about both of those. I've seen the Tuileries Park or Gardens described, I think in the rough guide, as, quote, the formal French garden par excellence. And yes, definitely, with its central alleyway, its chestnut trees, its statues, its classy museums, the orangerie, where you can see Impressionist paintings, and the Jeu de Paume, with its photographic exhibitions, and its cafes, with its tables set out under the trees in two or three parts of the park. It really is a lovely place to spend an afternoon or even a day. It began in the 1570s. There'd been a tile factory there. Tile in French is tuile, therefore tuilerie is a tile factory. But all of that was cleared away under the orders of Catherine de Medici because she wanted a garden made there. It was further worked on by Louis XIV's gardener, Monsieur Le Nôtre again, and he it is who's really left the flavour as it is today. The long straight avenues, the symmetrical flower beds, the order of the place. An English travel writer, 
one Martin Lister visited in 1698 and wrote about what he saw. Quote, this garden at the Tuileries is vastly great, has shaded terraces on two sides, one along the River Seine, planted with trees, very diverting, with great parterre in the middle and large fountains of water which constantly play. One end is the front of that magnificent palace, the Louvre, the other is low and for prospects open to the fields. So a reminder that in the 17th century this was the very edge of the city. So, yes, beautiful, certainly, but it did have also a slightly shady reputation, not least because it was a good place for a rendezvous if you were going to fight a duel. So there are people who lost their lives in that way, in the Tuileries. It was also a good place for courtiers to meet. The palaces of the Tuileries and the Louvre were close by, but they could meet here and talk in private, perhaps if there was some intrigue or plotting going on. And I did read one description from the end of the 17th century in which the author described the women there as being, quote, all painted. Possibly a bit sniffy, possibly a hint that there were some very shady goings-on. They tried to keep it classy. In fact, it was forbidden for soldiers or servants to go there, except on certain days in the year, the jour de fête. They tried to reserve it for the upper classes. But I guess the moral is that perhaps their manners and habits were actually no better than anybody else's. Something you might not realise, unless you're told, is that there was a palace there called the Tuileries Palace. Best known in history books today, perhaps, for being the place where Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were held pretty much as prisoners after they were brought back to Paris, the beginning of the French Revolution, and while they were waiting to go on trial, this is where they lived. And where, just occasionally, members of the public would see them out and about. The travel writer Arthur Young wrote a book called Travels in France, which was published in 1792, and in there he describes watching from the outside and seeing the king and the queen and their son, the Dauphin, all in the garden, all under supervision. This is what he wrote. The king, walking with six grenadiers of the milice bourgeoise, with an officer or two of his household, and a page. The doors of the gardens are kept shut in respect to him, in order to exclude everybody but deputies, or those who have admission tickets. When he entered the palace, the doors of the gardens were thrown open for all, without distinction. Though the Queen was still walking with a lady of her court, she also was attended so closely by the garde bourgeoise that she could not speak but in a low voice without being heard by them. A mob followed her, talking very loud, and paying no other apparent respect than that of taking off their hats whenever she passed which was indeed more than I had expected. Her Majesty does not appear to be in health. She seems to be much affected, and shows it in her face, but the King is as plump as ease can render him. By his orders, there is a little garden railed off for the Dauphin to amuse himself, and a small room is built in it to retire to in case of rain. Here he was at work with a little hoe and rake, but not without a guard of two grenadiers. Those must have been some of the last sightings of the royal family. The Tuileries Palace was in fact stormed later during the revolution by troops and by the mob. Many of the soldiers involved came from the city of Marseille and it was at this point that the song had been written, the very stirring number that I'm sure everybody knows, which was later after the revolution to become the national anthem and it was named after these soldiers, hence being called La Marseillaise. The Tuileries Palace was still there in Napoleon's day. He built his second Arc de Triomphe, called the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel, just outside it. 
Napoleon III had a building project which involved getting the Tuileries Palace to be linked to the Louvre to make one enormous complex, which was known at the time as the Cité Impériale. But it wasn't to be, because not that much later, in 1871, during the Communard uprising I talked about in an earlier episode, the Tuileries Palace was burnt down, and the decision was made not to rebuild it, but to clear the site and construct instead what you find there to this day, a garden, the Jardin du Carousel. The other building, and one which has lasted to this day, which was there, is the Louvre Palace, today known as one of the world's biggest and best art galleries, something I'll come back to in a later episode, but built, in fact, to be a palace. There was a fortress on the site in medieval times. In the 1360s, Charles V became the first king to decide to live there, but it really took off in 1528 under the kingship of François Ier, so François I, who decided that he would have it repaired because he wanted to make it his main home. Giving his orders, he said the following, Recognising our chateau of Le Louvre to be a most fitting and convenient lodging, we hereby order the said chateau to be repaired and put in order. This was duly done. A lot of work was done. In fact, so much work that people began to think it would never be finished. There's a nice quotation from a visiting Venetian ambassador's secretary who took a look round and said rather sniffily that it was all very well, but would they ever get it done? He put it much better than that, actually. This is what he said. If it were ever finished, one could rightly say that it was one of the world's most beautiful edifices. It was finished, he did move in, he did love living there. It became from that point on a dual institution, the place where the reigning monarch lived, but also the seat of royal power and government. Various future kings left their mark too, Henry IV, Louis XIII, and especially, you've guessed it, Louis XIV. But at some point shortly after that, Louis XIV decided that actually, if he lived in Paris, he was too get-attable by all the people who wanted to know what he was doing and had views on what he should be doing. So he decamped, as we said in an earlier episode, to his pet project, the Palace of Versailles. That marked the end of its heyday as a royal palace. And as we know, a new use was found for it eventually as an art gallery. Quite some art gallery, in fact. And I'll be talking about that in a future episode. For the moment, though, that's it on La Seine and Les Champs-Élysées. So just before signing off, a quick pointer towards next week's episode, when we're going to go across to the Saint-Germain area. So left bank Paris, not Montparnasse or the Quartier Latin, which we already dealt with, but the classier bit, a little further down river, the place where you'll find such lovely institutions as the Luxembourg Gardens and the Panthéon, some of Paris's big hitter churches like Saint-Sulpice and Saint-Germain-des-Prés. It's an arty area, not just the Musée d'Orsay, but two other museums dedicated to particular artists, Delacroix and Rodin. Intellectual Paris, the part where lots of the big publishing houses are, and the Académie Française, that venerable institution that likes to tell everybody they shouldn't be using franglais. And it's the centre of political Paris as well, housing both the Assemblée Nationale, so the Parliament, and the Sénat, the Upper House. So we can have a look at all those various things and spend a little time just wandering in Saint-Germain. All of that to come, but for the moment, I'm going to sign off, as usual, with my thanks, and I hope that you'll join me again next week. Je vous remercie. Au revoir.